I want to begin with uh, a story today um, from my from my childhood. Um, one, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and our family is in St. Louis and in Lexington, just down the road here. So I've been around here a lot of my life, but grew up elsewhere. And so we would take this big, long drive across uh, I-70, across Kansas, from Denver to go out to St. Louis. Many, you know, a couple times a year for sure, several times, um, some years. And it was always in the summertime. I mean, I don't know if anybody's from Kansas. Please accept my apologies. It was the worst. I mean, it's like there is nothing there. It, you can see the curve of the earth in Kansas from the ground. And there's not a tree in sight. There's not a, anything in sight. So uh, in the wintertime, it gets kind of interesting because of the fact that because of that topography that is very, very bare, the weather can just do what it wants to do. And I can remember driving down that highway and seeing a tornado touching down miles away. We just watched the whole thing, watched the storm come in, blue sky over us, watched the sky, the sky turn black and the, the, the whole tornado come down and everything, and we didn't have to do anything. You just keep on driving. That's how far away sometimes the weather was. But in the wintertime, uh, the snowstorms can get really dangerous really quickly in Kansas. So we were driving in the evening one night uh, across there, and it started coming a blizzard. Blizzard's one thing, but when that wind starts to go in, what can happen is this kind of phenomenon, weather phenomenon called a whiteout, that once that, that snow starts blowing, to the, it's falling at a certain degree, and it starts to uh, not only accumulate, but just fly around in the air, a whiteout happens. And what a whiteout is is exactly what it sounds like. It's just white everywhere. You can't see you know, with your hand in front of your face. So it gets really, really dangerous because you don't know which way you're going. Uh, you know, you see those old movies where people tie ropes to themselves to go out to the barn, you know, in a whiteout and come back. And the reason is because you can get lost in your own property. And many, many people have died just feet away from, you know, safety uh, because they didn't know which way to go or they walked the wrong direction. So we're driving across, whiteout starts happening. Um, and we tried a couple of things. I remember my dad getting out and walking in front of the car because part of the problem is you can run off the highway, don't even know it. You know, there's all kinds of stuff that can happen. And uh, this is before phones, so we don't know anything about where anything is. And if you don't have your, you can't use your map and see the, 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 the mile markers, you're just in trouble. And uh, I was little and, and wasn't real, you know, aware, but I could tell my folks were worried and very upset. <laughs> And, um, and I, as a kid, you know, you just kind of get that sense of things, that they're upset. As an adult now, and as a parent now, I realized they were terrified. You know, I realized that that kind of situation is a terrifying situation. And especially you got your family with you, and you don't know what's going to happen. Um, can't see anything. And then that can happen all night. And if you get, you know, run out of gas and get stuck on the side of the road, it's deadly. So uh, I do still remember after, you know, just kind of driving inch by inch, trying to stay on the highway even, um, when there came really out of nowhere, it seemed, this neon sign for a diner. And that was just like my, my, my parents just light, lit up themselves, you know, because it let them know that there was 
civilization. You know, there was something there. There was help close by. Now, we still couldn't get off. I mean, we didn't know where the exit ramp was. We didn't know how far away it was. We didn't know anything like that. But that sign lighted, you know, kind of burned through the snow there and said, there's help. And I remember the change in them from that. Uh, We ended up kind of coming up on a truck that uh, we just followed taillights until we got off uh, the highway and and you know, we got to this little diner that you would never, ever want to go to except, you know, <laughs> in a whiteout. It's like the best place ever, you know. And I, don't, I think we stayed there all night and made a bunch of, you know, you make friends. Uh, that truck driver was like the guy. You know, we were like crazy about that guy. And um, uh, he, t- he said he ran over a few mile markers trying to get to the, uh, to the exit ramp. So it was a real intense situation. Um, now I say that um, because I don't know if you've ever been in trouble, real trouble before. You know, you may, I, I think a lot of us have been in trouble, but then there's a difference between trouble and real trouble, isn't there? There's a difference between trouble, there's even a difference between, you know, you get a bill you can't pay, you, I know a lot of us have, have had that happen to us, you, something happens like that, that's even a little bit different than feeling like I may not make it out of this. You know what I mean? Like this is this is um, gotten real serious real quick. A moment in your life when you realize you might not make it. Um, if you've had a moment like that, I want you to think about it for a moment. Some of you may not want to think about it, and I get that. But if you can just think about how you felt in that moment, and that and the, and if you haven't had a moment like that where you did not know if you're going to survive or make it then that's why I told that story, so you could just borrow mine, all right? And just imagine yourself in that situation with your children. Just imagine yourself in that situation. How bad was that moment you, you realized you were in real trouble? And now I want you to think, because you're still here, I'm going to assume that things turned out okay. I want you to think about the moment when somebody showed up, when something happened. See, when you have a moment when you realize there's nothing else you can do, you're dependent on something outside of yourself happening, or else it's, that's it, that's a real uh, amazing moment. And if you haven't had one, just use your imagination, and I hope you don't have to have one. But this is the mental space that we need to be in today, a little bit. Not just in the fear, but in the relief, <laughs> of seeing that sign burning through the storm, right? We need to be in that mental space in order to truly appreciate the name of Jesus this morning. This morning in particular. I would love it if you left this place today with a real sense in your heart of power in the name of Jesus. That the name of Jesus would have an effect on you. Like that light, that, that, that light had in the storm had on my parents. I would love it if you could leave this place today feeling something in your heart at the very mention of the name of Jesus. There's a Donnie McClurkin song. At the mention of your name, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. At the mention of your name, I heard somebody talking about one time that they had, they knew somebody that had a hard time getting uh, hot water up to their uh, upstairs bathroom. Uh, and so when they got up in the morning, it was just cold forever. And it was cold at night. And so that what they would do is leave a little bit of a drip, you know, happening in that, in that, uh, that, 
that sink in the hot, with the hot water so that when they got up in the morning, that hot water was ready to go. And I would love it if you lived your life and I lived my life in such a way that we were sitting on ready to go so when we hear the name of Jesus, there's something that happens in us and we don't need a lot of warm-up time because we've considered the power of the name of Jesus. I would love it if you could leave this place today with a feeling in your heart like the feeling that surely must have been in my parents' hearts when they saw that neon sign burning bright in the blowing snow that night in Kansas. This is the nature of the name of Jesus, especially the name of Jesus that we will learn today as we continue our sermon series, as was mentioned earlier, on the names and titles of Jesus in the Bible. Today we consider what the book of Hebrews has to say about this, that Jesus is the new and better priest of a new and better covenant the new and better priest of a new and better covenant. So if you would, please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, and I'll be reading the entirety of that chapter from the New International Version. All right, now I know that sounds like a lot to read a chapter. Uh, It's a short chapter, all right? Uh, If you would, please, you're going to make it. It's going to be all right, even though we are reading a chapter. Uh, If you would, please stand with me if you are able as we read from Hebrews chapter 8. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by, mere human, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and, to, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy, that is a sign, that is a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned When he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry of Jesus that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will, put, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now the text of this, uh, or the actual text of this sermon is really the last half of Hebrews 6, all of Hebrews 7, and all of Hebrews 8. But I really thought that would really freak you all out. 
if I said, let's stand up and read a third of the book of Hebrews before we begin. I'll be referring to things, though, in chapter 6 and 7 today, so you can have those nearby. But chapter 8 gives a good overview of what is meant by the writer of the book of Hebrews when he or she refers to Jesus as the high priest of a new and better covenant. We don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some say it was Paul. Some say it was Apollos. Definitely someone who is well-schooled in Jewish history and religion, and definitely someone who is crazy about Jesus, someone who is bananas about Jesus, someone who has, doesn't have to turn on that hot water and wait for it to come up at the mention of Jesus' name. Uh, that's, 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 that's somebody who sees Jesus as everything that wrote this book. I think the writer of Hebrews would love that song that we sang today. I think the writer of Hebrews would sing as loud, and one of the things I like about that song is you can sing as loud as you want, and it ain't loud enough. I know the writer of Hebrews would love to sing my life and my breath. Lord, you're everything to me. You are my peace. You're my joy in the sorrow of this world. You are my uh, hope for tomorrow. You are the Neon sign that's shining in the storm. Master, Savior, Ruler, Redeemer. Hebrews celebrates each of these terms, these names for Christ. Provider, shelter, healer, deliverer, protector, provider, and Savior, Jesus. And I love that the last, you know, the, the, the whole last verse is Jesus. And then it goes, Jesus. And then after that, it says, Jesus. You see what I'm saying? I like uh, that. That's a, that's a great verse. That's a great verse. And if you think it didn't take a long time to think that up, then you don't know Jesus, <laughs> right? Because that's a, that's a kind of song that burns in you. That's the kind of song that it matters a whole lot how you sing it as much as what you sing. Because what you're doing is you're speaking the name of Jesus. And everything that comes with it is burning in your heart. So every Jesus, in my mind, has an exclamation point after the end of it. It's a good day in church today. We sang one of my favorite songs, and I'm preaching from my favorite book. Hebrews is my favorite book. I don't know, I don't know if you're supposed to have a favorite book, but I do, I do like Hebrews. I don't know how heaven works either, but I hope that I get... To find out who wrote the book of Hebrews, I have a lot to thank them for. Because I remember where I was sitting, y'all, when it suddenly became clear to me that, which is probably clear to a lot of people already before that, that uh, Hebrews is the key. It's the key that unlocks the tumbler of the Bible. It's what connects the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you're here struggling today, saying, I, I, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus, but this Old Testament God, you know, I read some stuff in there that makes me squirm a little bit. Hebrews is the key. Hebrews is what unlocks how you're supposed to read that, how you're supposed to relate the old covenant to the new covenant. You have to do some homework when you read the book of Hebrews. You have to dig a little bit. But let me tell you, however hard you have to dig in order to get to the treasure, you just go on and buckle down and dig because the treasure you find, the treasure you find, is the longest one-word sermon ever. <laughs> it's all about Jesus. And it tells us that the whole Bible is about Jesus. Um, 
Everything makes sense in Jesus when you read Hebrews. And none of it makes sense if you take Jesus out of it. This book makes no sense if you take Jesus out of it. And I would argue life makes no sense if you take Jesus out of it. And this book of Hebrews really doesn't pull punches. It's very clear. It's very direct. Look with me again at Hebrews 8, 6. I don't know if y'all noticed this. It says, but in fact, the ministry of Jesus has received, that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator that is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. So what this is saying is that the thousand year, you know, whatever was ministry of the priesthood in Israel was an inferior priesthood. Just as the covenant that God made with Moses was an inferior covenant. Uh, that's, you know, that's getting right to it. It's saying that Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant that is established on better promises. Now, it's possible that it doesn't sound real scandalous to you to say that. <laughs> so let's back up and define some terms and set the stage a little bit. First of all, a simple definition of a covenant would be this. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. And I want to put an emphasis on the relationship part of that definition. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. It's not so much a contract in the biblical sense. It's more personal than that. It's much more binding. It represents a new relationship. It's why we use it for wedding you know, ceremonies or, or wedding vows as covenants. Because this is a chosen relationship in which two parties are making binding promises to one another. We make a membership covenant. We make covenant promises in here. It's, a, it's, a, it's promises based on our relationship and how we're going to deal with one another in relationship. So contract just doesn't do it. See what I'm saying? Okay. The term covenant is related to the Hebrew word for the special kind of agreement. And the term testament comes from the Greek word for this kind of agreement. So when we see Old Testament and New Testament, we could just as easily read those Old Covenant and New Covenant. There are a series of covenants made, by, uh, made between God and mankind that serve as the, kind of the backbone or the spinal column of the Bible, if you will. There's the Adamic Covenant made with mankind at creation. There's the Abrahamic Covenant. There's the Davidic Covenant. But the Old Covenant that's being referred to here in Hebrews 8 is the Mosaic Covenant. This is a covenant made by God with the people at Mount Sinai. It was given to Moses. That's why it's called the Mosaic Covenant. When the law was given to them, uh, he wrote it down. And y'all, you know, remember the scene with Charlton Heston, right? Uh, all, like all the other covenants, that covenant contained oaths, right? Covenants create promises, oaths, binding promises on both sides of the agreement. In the Old Testament, and it is often sealed by blood and the sacrifice of animals. Sometimes, you know, if you read, it's very, it's, it, the seriousness of the covenant is illustrated in how the blood is used. You cut an animal in half, down the half, and split it, and you walk between, and you say, may it be unto me as it is to this animal if I break this covenant. 
So it's a covenant sealed by blood, often. And it's established with most covenants that there's a mediator of that covenant. And that's where we come to the priesthood. The priests are the mediators of the Mosaic covenant. The law is given. If the law is broken, the priest is to mediate between the two parties, God and mankind. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says now, here, this is the summary of the covenant made when the law is given to Moses with the people. This is what God tells Moses to tell the people. Let's see if they're going to agree. It says, now if you obey me fully, keep my covenant. So that tells you what they need to do to keep the covenant is what? Obey me fully. Very important. He reemphasizes that over and over again, fully. Then out of all nations, listen to this, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy or a set-apart nation. You will be my treasured possession. So the promises that the people make is that they have to obey God fully. The promises that God makes is that you will be my treasured possession. Isn't that something? That's amazing. So it will be for them like it was in Eden before the fall. On the people's side of this is the command to obey God fully, completely, without fail. What's expected, what the, what the priests will enforce is that you learn the law, you write it on your heart, write it on a doorpost, make a thing to put on your forehead, bind it to your arm, do whatever you need to do, get it in you. You better know it so you can keep it perfectly. That's our side of the covenant. God's side is I will make you my treasured possession. We'll return to that later. For now, let's reflect on what the book of Hebrews has to say about this covenant. In Hebrews 7, if you were to look back just a, a page or two, Hebrews 7, 18, and 19 gets even more uh, salty about the old covenant. It says, the former regulation is set aside. The former covenant, the former law is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Yikes. Weak and useless. To summarize what the writer uh, is saying about the Old Testament covenant is that it is being replaced by a new covenant, a new and better covenant based on new and better promises by and, and, and mediated by a new and better priest. So what was wrong? Maybe we need to understand that. What was wrong with the old covenant that, that the writer would use such strong language as weak and useless? All right? So let's, uh, writer gets pretty plain about what is wrong with it from what we already read. Look at, again at verse 7 and 9 in Hebrews 8. It says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault. God found fault with the people. And said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. That's the covenant at Sinai. Look at why it's going to be different. Why did it fail? Why is it a weak covenant? Why is it a useless covenant? Right there in verse 9. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. 
and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So the problem with the old covenant is not God, and it's not the covenant. It's us. So when the writer of Hebrews says it's weak and useless, it's not talking about God, not talking about the covenant. It's talking about us. We did not remain faithful to that covenant. The old covenant is weak because we are weak. The old covenant is weak because it depends on us. It depends on the faithfulness of human beings. And there are two problems with that. Uh, if it's dependent on our faithfulness, we in our fallen state are faithless creatures. <laughs> That's problem number one. Problem number two is we don't even know it. We don't want to admit it. You know what the response of the Israelites was when the covenant was introduced in Exodus 19? It says, Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord has commanded them to speak. And there's a lot of words and there's a lot of stuff in that law. The people all respond together. We will do everything the Lord has said. And that's it. Yeah, we can do that. Cool. So how long do you think that lasts for them? <laughs> how long do you have keeping the law? How long are you going to last in your own power, right? I think I, I'm, I'm bet, I, I think I got a good 15 minutes in me. And that's about it. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Getting wiser every day. Now, the problem with the Old, Te the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, is it doesn't fix what's broken in us, right? All it does is highlight what's broken in us. That's what the law does. And that's what it's meant to do. We need to understand that God never intended that the Mosaic Covenant would be permanent. He knew it couldn't last because he knows us. He knew also that we needed it. So the Mosaic Covenant is weak and useless and, at the same time, does exactly what it was intended to do. In the book of Galatians, Paul teaches us what the purpose of the law is, what the purpose of the Old Covenant is. The Old Covenant doesn't make anything perfect. We saw that in Hebrews 7. It's not meant to make anything perfect. It's not meant to do anything to you. It's not meant to create anything in you. It just tells us what perfection looks like. It tells us what holiness looks like. It gives us a standard. It gives us a plumb line. It tells us about who God is. It tells us about his holiness. But it doesn't do anything to us. It doesn't heal anyone. And it's not meant to. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says, the law was our guardian, it says in, in IV. And another, another uh, and it says that guardian came, we had until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith under Christ. We'll talk about that. Now that that faith has come, we're no longer under that guardian. So we get that same sense that there was an old covenant. That old covenant is passed. There's now a new one that's established by faith. But it explains to us there what that old covenant was for. It's a guardian to us. And that word guardian can be translated schoolmaster. It's a teacher. It's supposed to teach us something. What is it that the old covenant was established to teach First of all, that God is holy, and holiness is life. Holiness isn't like, I mean, what do you think of when you think of holiness? Like superiority, right? 
I'm bet, you know, so you think of somebody that's holier than thou, right? That's somebody who's self-important, somebody who's self-righteous, maybe. But the point of holiness is that holiness is life. That's how it's presented in the Bible. Set apart from death to life, right? To live. So God is holy. He is life. To be alive, we need to be holy. You see what I'm saying? To be alive and in his presence, we have to be holy. If we're dead, we're not in his presence. We can't be. And so this, that's the second thing that sin teaches, I mean, I'm sorry, that the Old Covenant teaches us is that sin is deadly. It kills us. It separates us from the, play, from the, you know, the, uh, the presence of the Lord. God is holy. Holiness is life. Sin is deadly. And that's why there's blood attached to sin. That's why this sacrificial system happened. It's because God wanted to teach us how deadly serious our sin is. So those are three things it teaches. God is holy. Holiness is life. Sin is deadly. And thirdly then, we need somebody that, we need a savior. That's the other thing it teaches us. Now, we don't just need a helper. We need a savior. Right? We, 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 don't, we don't need just some advice. We need a savior. We, we, we don't need uh, uh, somebody with a good plan. We need somebody to pick us up and carry us elsewhere, right? To take us up out of the trouble and put us in, a, in, in another place. That is another thing that the Old Covenant is meant to teach us, that we need a Savior, and that Savior has to be outside of us. Amen? Now, the fourth thing, and then let's talk about those first, those first three things. God is holy. Sin is deadly. We need a Savior. That's the problem with human beings here and now. We're in the middle of a whiteout, y'all. Okay? That was always been our situation. We're in the middle of a whiteout. That's the position that sin puts us in. It's a position of blindness. That's what the Bible tells us over and over again, that sin is blindness. It blinds our spiritual eyes. Uh, so we cannot see what's up, down, left, or right. This is a deadly position to be in. It's a big problem, it's, and it's even a bigger problem that we don't even know it or aware of it. We're not aware of how deadly our position is. So the first thing the law does shows us we are dying. We are dead in our sins, as it says in Paul's writings. In fact, it teaches us that we are, uh, our situation is hopeless in ourselves, in the sense that there is nothing that we can do to help ourselves. As a family in that car, in the whiteout, in the middle of Kansas, we have until the gas runs out, right? Unless something happens outside of us. So in fact, the more we try to help ourselves and save ourselves in a whiteout, the worse things get for us. That's what I was telling you earlier. People die feet away from a warm house in a whiteout. In a whiteout, help can only come from outside yourself. And these are the first three purposes of the Old Covenant. That's what they teach us. That we are, God is holy, we're dying from sin, and we need a Savior. But the last thing that it also teaches us there's another purpose for the law. It's not only negative. It doesn't just teach us negative things. The other thing it teaches us is that a Savior is coming. That's what the Old Testament law does. Is it doesn't just leave us as, at, at, boy, you are in trouble. 
It's like there is a need for a Savior, and there is a Savior coming. There is a Savior coming. Now, I'm going to let the Apostle Paul preach on this for a minute here from the book of Romans, okay? What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Is that what Hebrews means when it says the, the law is weak? Is it sinful? Certainly not, says Paul. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity that it was afforded by the law, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law, I sinned. Sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual. I'm a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. Can anybody relate to that? So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I want to do the right thing, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Wouldn't it be terrible to be left right there? But that's not where that passage ends. It says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a Savior coming. There is a Savior coming. You see, we don't just need a new and better covenant, brothers and sisters. We need a new and better priest. The priest is the mediator of the covenant. The priest is the one who stands in the holy place and atones for the sin of the people. But just like the law couldn't make us perfect, it couldn't make us free from our sin, a sinful priest like you and I can't make us perfect either. So the sons of Aaron could only atone for our sins with the blood of goats and cattle after they had atoned for their own sins. So how are they going to set us free from sin when they are sinners themselves? How are they going to show us the way out of the storm when they are blind and in the midst of the storm themselves? It's like the blind leading the blind. And I want you to think about how many of you are looking to blind guides to show you the way. There are priests all over the place. There always have been. Now we just got, you know, more outlets like TV and podcasts and, uh, uh, you know, all that YouTube channels and stuff. They write books. They run for president. Some of them might even be preachers. But you have to understand that no human being can save you from the storm. They are in the midst of it just like you. Now, I'm not saying that a human being doesn't give you wisdom or help, but they can't save you from the storm. All human priests are, at best, priests in the line of Aaron. And the only priest in the line of Aaron, the only thing a priest in the line of Aaron can do to help you are, is to tell you often and clearly, I can't save you. I can't save you, but I can't point you to the one who can. I can point you to the one who can save you. You don't need a priest. You listen to a priest. You listen to a priest that tells you, you don't need a priest from the line of Aaron. You need a priest from the line of Melchizedek. Now, I doubt anybody's going to say it to you that way. Okay? But I think we should start. We should make some T-shirts. You don't need a priest in the line of Aaron. I can be the front. On the back, 
you need a priest from the, from the line of Melchizedek. Uh, that'll be very clear to people. And they'll be like, oh, that's what I've been missing. That's why I don't want to go to church anymore. All these people have been talking about Aaron. <laughs> Melchizedek. He's the guy. That's right. I'm going to church. I'm going to get right. Melchizedek shows up briefly in the book of Genesis chapter 14. He is recognized in that brief uh, part of that chapter and honored by David as a priest. And he's unique in all the scriptures as a priest. First of all, because he's not from the Levitical line. He's not from the line of Aaron. Okay? We don't know his line. We don't know where he came from. There's no record of his death. And in fact, because of that, he was referred to in Jewish history as the priest who lives forever. Another interesting thing about this priest is that he was also a king. He was king of a city named Salem, which as you know means peace. His very name means king, king of righteousness. And he's not a, you know, uh, 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 as I mentioned earlier, a priest in the line of Aaron. And so now if we go back to our Bible, to the Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and we look at verse 11, it says this, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that's the, the priest in Aaron's line, and indeed the law given to the people established by that priesthood, then why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must change also. Y'all hear me? Listen to that. For when the priesthood changes, the law must change also. That's what we're going to see. He whom these things are said belongs to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe ever had served at the altar. For it's clear that Jesus descended from Judah. And in regards to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is that even more, that even more clearly is that if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not only on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis, look at this, of the power of an indestructible life. So let me translate here a little bit. What this is saying is Jesus is not a priest because um, of his parentage, right? He's a priest because of his indestructible life. He's a priest that lives forever. Now, that means not only did Jesus live a perfect life, keeping the law that we could not keep, so he can mediate for us because he kept that, he had a perfect life. He also proved that the life that was in him was indestructible, rising from the grave after three days. So I like that term, indestructible life. And then being exalted at his ascension to the right hand of his father, his identity becomes clear as the priest who is also a king. So he's the priest who is also a king. He's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He is a priest, not because of the blood of his, in his veins, but because of the anointing of the Almighty. He is a priest who lives forever. And so the life that he gives us is unending. This is indeed a new and better priest, says the writer of Hebrews, that can mediate a new and better covenant. Look at verse 26 of chapter 7. Such a high priest truly meets our need. This is what we need. 
one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike all the other priests, high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. This is our only refuge from the storm. This is what the neon sign of the law in the old covenant was pointing to. This is the priest that can mediate a new covenant to you and I. The new covenant that we already read about in chapter 8, beginning in verse 10, where it says, this is the covenant I will establish, that I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And what does he say? Does he say, you put, this is the law, put the law in your hearts. No, he says, I will put the law in their hearts. Does he, does, does he say, um, you make me your God. He says, I will make myself their God. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they have to teach their neighbor saying, know the Lord because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. See, what is wrong with the old covenant is that it's dependent on what we are going to do. But what's right about this new covenant is that it's dependent on what God has already done in Jesus Christ. What is wrong with the old covenant is that it's mediated by human priests and sealed with the blood of goats and the blood of bulls. But what is right about the new covenant is that it's mediated by a priest who never sinned and will never die and is sealed by his own innocent blood. What is wrong with the old covenant is that it was never meant to be anything more than a neon sign burning in the storm telling you that there is a shelter and you need it because you are dying. But what's right about the new covenant is that's the shelter. And in that shelter, we have in Christ what was promised at the Adamic covenant, at the Davidic covenant, at the Mosaic covenant, At all the covenants that run through the backbone of the Bible, here is God's side of the promise. You will be my precious possession. That's that's what we get. And now it's not dependent on my performance, see, because I've already messed that up. It's too late for that. Okay, It's not like, you know, there's nothing to be done about that. At this point, I am lost in the, in the storm. But there is a Savior. There is a Savior. And his name is Jesus. He is a great high priest of a new covenant. And now our side of the covenant is we just trust him. We trust him. We put our faith, this is what faith is, is trust in him. That he keeps the covenant. And he writes it in our heart. And the more that we give way to him, the more that covenant will be written in our heart. And the more and more we will want to obey. We will want him to be our God and for for us to be his people. All we need to do is exercise trust in him. And what we get 
his side of the bargain is that we become his treasured possession. Let me get the band to come forward. Let me get our, our servers in place. Let's set aside our books and our notes. And I just want to mention this um, as we kind of turn our attentions to the Lord. I just want to turn our attentions to God. And I want to recognize that not everybody in here may be convinced about Jesus. And there may be those in here, and because I'm a human being and this is a tough passage, that even what I've said is confusing and maybe I've left some stones unturned for you and there's something that you don't understand that I've said. So I just want all of us to just turn our attentions to God and we want to just ask the God, the God of heaven and earth, almighty God, let's, let's turn our hearts towards him in prayer now. And, and, and let's just say this in our hearts, Father, you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have sent the Spirit. That's why Jesus had to come back up and was ascended into heaven so that the spirit could come so you have sent your spirit to us and you've made that spirit available to us if we'll just reach out to you lord and we'll just reach out in trust and in faith and say god i don't understand everything if you need to say god this preacher has confused me today to say that god we're reaching out to you Send your Holy Spirit to us to enlighten us. This is what you tell us the Spirit does. It opens up our spiritual eyes. We are blind. We are in the wilderness. We are in the storm. But there is a light shining. And I'm asking for eyes to open to see, just to see that light. Maybe they can't make out what it says yet. Lord, would you just draw them to that light? Draw them to yourself. Draw them to yourself. If there's anything that I've said today that's confusing, I want to apologize. That's me. But I'm praying now for what the Bible says, the Word of God that comes like a double-edged sword to cut. Now, that's, that's not a violent image in the sense of, of trying to hurt you, to harm you. But it, it might hurt. Because when we cut off those calluses and we cut off those places that are hard in us, that can hurt. When bones that have grown back crooked need to be rebroken in order to be set straight, that hurts. But at the end of the day, it's an act of love. And the Spirit comes to bring the Word of God to cut like a two-edged sword so that we are open to Him and we're open to His love. We can be filled by it. So would you receive that? Would you receive that? Stand with me if you would, and let me remind you what we'll be doing here. We are Christians, and what Christians do is we take of the Lord's Supper together. It's what Jesus gave us, and he said that this is the new covenant that is instituted by my blood. This is a meal, and some 
people believe that the oldest words for covenant in Hebrew have to do with people taking a meal together as a sign of that covenant. So God's given us a sign. He's given us this meal to remind us that we're taking it all together. We're at the same table together with him. And I want you to imagine him breaking that bread and saying, this is my body that is broken for you. And as you come forward, you'll take some of that bread. You'll be reminded this is the body of Christ that's broken for you. And I want you to just imagine him taking that cup and passing it around and saying, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you. And as you come down here and you've got that piece of bread in your hand, we'll do it a little bit different. We'll we'll dip that bread in in the juice and you'll be reminded this is the blood of Christ that's been shed for you. And as you take of that, I just want you to be reminded that Jesus is the new and better priest of a new and better covenant. And what he's offering you in himself is the ability to be the prized possession of God. The promise that always was. And if we're, and if we're outside of that promise, that's because we're chasing after all these false priests. I want you to turn your eyes upon Jesus today. Turn your eyes upon him. Jesus is the word of God. We said that from the very beginning. We're going to sing about the word. Receive that word from him today. Let's take you this meal together in Jesus' name. If you need to pray for any reason, come on down. This altar's open. My wife will be down here with me. If you want to pray with one of us, we're happy to do that. But anybody is welcome to come and pray for whatever reason. Let's take you this meal together.